What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Conspira Normal. On the eve of the conference, pretty much. Yeah, as you're hearing this, it's the eve of the conference. It's not the eve of the conference. We're putting it out after. But we hope it was a good conference. Yeah. <laughs> it was really great seeing all you guys, man. Finally yeah. meeting a lot of my favorite authors. Yeah. So, so um, if you're new, welcome to Conspira Normal. We'll, I'll say why we said that later on. But... We're going straight to the guests as we usually do, and this is someone that will be with us at the Strange Realities Conference, or has been with us, or however it works through the the, the time travel space time continuum. But uh, actually, local Tennessean, he's only about a hundred miles away from where we are, and that's Brent Rains. Welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Thank you very much, Adam. I appreciate it. Uh, I, um, I feel like we're time traveling here. This is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there, there's definitely some time travel all the time with, uh, with podcasting. That's for sure, man. But, um, you have written a book about John Keel, but I want to talk a little bit about you before we get to talking about the, about the book and your relationship with Keel. And, First of all, the book is called John A. Kill, The Man, The Myths, and the, uh, on the, and the Ongoing Mysteries. But let's get some of your background, how you got into 
all this, as we call it, weird stuff? Well, as a young boy, I was, you know, interested in the possibility of life in space. Um, you know, my dad had built me a little playhouse that I converted con- converted into a, uh, um, like an astral lab as a kid. You know, I had cut a, a hole out one of the, the walls there where I could put a telescope through and, and look at Venus. And, you know, I uh, thought, you know, it was really cool. Watched a lot of science fiction. And one day I read this uh, book, Flying Sauces, Serious Business by Frank Edwards, which a lot of people I have talked to uh, started out with that book. Mm. And uh, I had seen him on television um, on one of the uh, daytime talk shows and talking about some case over in some foreign country, I think, where there was uh, someone had encountered a little being. And so that intrigued me. And uh, so about January 1967, at age 14, I decided what I later uh, heard was called uh, ufologist. I decided to become a ufologist. I started collecting all the information I could get my hands on whenever I'd go to – a grocery store or bookstore. I would be <clears throat> checking the the uh, the racks for you know something to do with UFOs. Uh, it might have been the National Enquirer or Fate Magazine or just whatever. But I'd look for those little headlines, UFOs. And back then there were quite a few. And of course, uh, back in '67 there was. Uh, there was quite a bit of activity still. 66 was the real, considered the real active year by a lot of people. Oh, yeah. But uh, 67 was too. And so pretty soon I started corresponding with people. And uh, I began to reach out to people. And I started a little, uh, after a little over a year, I guess, I started a little mimeograph magazine called uh, Sauceritis. And. Huh. <laughs> you know, uh, it was something I'd seen when I was going to the library in a local newspaper office that uh, they had the microfiche, all these old stories that went back like 1947 to the very beginning of the modern flying sauce air and looked up, you know, looking for local stories, which I did find some. And then uh, I looked uh, during other active periods, including even 1896 and 97, 1909 and 1910. You're like the airship we, stuff? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I did a little research on that too. And um, I even corresponded. With, one of my first correspondents was Lucius Farish, who had done a lot of uh, research and published a lot of, written a lot of articles that were published on the airship wave. Uh, he was a collector of newspapers uh, stories. He, he in fact, he lived out in Plumerville, Arkansas, and he used to, uh, for quite a number of years, uh, he would publish a uh, monthly news clipping service just on UFO reports. And he had a lot of correspondence, so he got quite a bit of, of material that came into him, not just here in the United States, but England and Australia and places. And uh, he also started the Eureka Springs UFO Conference, and uh, okay, I yeah, finally, that's a big one. <clears throat> yeah, and I finally met up uh, with him there while he was still alive. Uh, in 2007, I went out there myself and uh, was a vendor and attended the talks, did some interviews with some of the speakers, and 
I got to do an interview with him as well. It was nice to finally be able to meet someone face-to-face that I had written to so much over the years. But anyway, that's how I how I got started was uh, just, you know, this uh, feeling like there had to be something to it. And uh, my initial my initial reaction was just, you know, that it was an either or simple little proposition. It was either like the Air Force said, you know, there was just misidentification of Venus on the horizon and and uh, airplanes and such and weather balloons or else there was something truly uh, strange to it, that there were these craft that uh, could land and leave marks on the ground, that they were beings and they would have been extraterrestrial. But then as I delved into it further, then I started reading articles by authors who proposed alternative theories too. So it, the situation began to become a little more involved and a little more complicated than I had originally judged it to be. So what was the tipping point for you on that? What was the point where you said there's a lot, there's more going on here than the physical nuts and bolts craft, so to speak? Like where, where did you kind of start to part that there's more, there's more going on? Well, I started corresponding personally with John Keel in October of 69. That's early. So you would have been like 16, right? Yeah. Uh, Wow. 16, 17. Wow. And, and you know, I, uh, I had been reading his articles. He hadn't actually published a book on UFOs yet. That came the following year. But uh, his articles were exploring, you know, the idea of uh, cases where there were entities that could uh, that he believed weren't just extraterrestrial. They, they could be from a parallel, parallel world. He provided, a, you know, he talked about electromagnetic fields, energy, um, what he called the super spectrum or came to call the super spectrum that, uh, you know, physicists today talk about uh, dark energy, dark matter embedded within, you know, a field that we can't quite uh, see yet and, and 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 verify, but they're speculating there's something there. And he was speculating that there was something there as well, and that uh, we might be dealing with interactions, intrusions from a from a parallel world. And he called these beings ultra terrestrials instead mm-hmm. of extraterrestrials. And his speculations really uh, at that time, you know, the UFO field was a little over two decades officially, <clears throat> and and you know they. A lot of people weren't weren't too happy with his ideas and thought he was just kind of a little too woo-woo. But uh, I, I, you know, I thought, well, this is this is certainly interesting, and he's touching upon things that could explain a lot of a lot of areas that um, that haven't been addressed. So I I read his materials with great interest, as well as what evolved with Jacques Vallée, because. Jacques Vallée in 69 came out with a book called Passport to Magonia that explored hundreds of stories of landings and craft uh, beings and, and uh, uh, also the little people, fairy lore, and, and drawing attention to the similarities as Keel did with, you know, elemental beings and uh, Marian apparitions and showing that, you know, they were religious, mythic context that had 
certain similarity what's being reported in our modern times. So uh, that's that's where you know it uh, it began for me, and uh, Keel was really uh, tackling this this area very hot and heavy. And uh, did you ever actually meet him in person, or was it just like correspondence? I never did. I uh, I wanted to, and uh, we took you know wrote a lot of letters. In fact, I'm gonna I've talked with Doug Skinner, a friend of his. Uh, in New York, who who maintains the JohnKeel.com website, and uh, I've you know talked with him recently about submitting some of my Keel letters to be posted on there. He's got a lot of materials that he's posted from Keel's uh, what he could gather from Keel's files, letters and uh, pictures and articles, clippings and things, uh, which. Uh, Gets visited a lot by people who are interested in John Keel, of course, and uh, so I'm I'm hoping that you know I'll do this and that uh, maybe he can use some of those letters and uh, perhaps other people who also have <laughs> have files with uh, John Keel letters in them will also you know uh, send them on to him and he'll maybe post them on his website as well. Uh, there seems to be more and more interest in Keel and his ideas, and and these letters may offer some things that uh, aren't, you know, generally known. Or uh, I know a lot of times he would write things and say, you know, well, uh, just kind of keep this to yourself. Uh, no sense in uh, stirring up the the UFO buffs any more than they already are, you know. <laughs> so. But anyway, that's how it began for me. And so the book here is is part biographical. And then it's also got interviews with people like myself who had some connection with Keel or were exploring uh, some of his ideas, expanding on, you know, the, the, the research and investigations, uh, exploring the ongoing activity or situation. And uh, so anyway, that was just uh, what I wanted to do. I mean, I had been... Uh, I've been going at this, it'll be uh, going on 53 years wow. now. Wow. And yeah, and so I, I've, i you know, uh, gathered my own data, and so I wanted to present cases that I had looked into that uh, bore similarity to the things that uh, Keel had e- explored. I corresponded quite a bit with Keel uh, by letter and at one time by uh, email until he got fed up with the internet. And uh, also we talked on the phone a number of occasions. And uh, it was, you know, it was always very interesting. He was always very uh, informative. And uh, I always uh, felt privileged and honored, you know, to to have some interaction with him because I really, uh, I feel like if it hadn't been for uh, connecting with Keel and, and uh, reading his writings that I probably would have eventually, uh, as I, you know, if I, if the ET thing had been it, I probably would have just got kind of bored with it and moved on, you know? Sure. Yeah. The, that's, that's the thing that people don't understand about us that have this viewpoint where the, the mainstream ufology and it's starting to change, but the mainstream ufology that believes, you know, we're dealing with kind of like aliens from another planet. They think that we're just saying that there's, there's nothing to it or that we're kind of, um, 
denigrating that whole idea, but like when you really get into the weeds yeah. of the alternate stuff, so there's more to it. There's way more to it, and it's 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 even more it's even more crazy and even more amazing than than you know somebody from Zeta Reticuli. And and you know that's why the whole situation hasn't uh, I don't think been properly addressed. Um, you know, I, I, when I got into the field and, and Keel started, you know, his investigations, which was around 1966, and yeah. and he was exploring the ET thing at the time. But by 1967, he had been, uh, you know, becoming more deeply involved, uh, traveling through different states, interviewing um, multiple witnesses. And looking at the contact experience situation, and uh, he began to realize there were a lot of uh, psychic paranormal underpinnings to this uh, activity that was going on, and it was more complex and perplexing than the the you know the the general vision that the uh, mainstream nuts and bolts ufologists had. It was far more, and and I think in this day and time, uh, because I'm. I'm getting a really good reception to my book. Uh, there's a lot of interest in what Keel wrote and said back then. He was such a controversial Absolutely. figure, and 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 a lot of ridicule was heaped upon him. And uh, and I, I think now that people are looking at the deeper elements of consciousness and physics and are saying, "Hey, you know, uh, this is uh, quite possible," and and uh, there's. Um, there are people who really are looking for the answers in that area. I'm, I know I've even uh, interacted in, in, in recent years with a number of uh, people, uh, PhD psychologists and neuroscientists and astrophysicists, and and they're looking at all this stuff. But a lot of them are waiting until their retirement years, you know. <laughs> uh, but they wanna they wanna know. Um, what uh, what Keel was exploring, and I've been asked to write a a chapter on on just John Keel for uh, an upcoming book of the uh, Dr. Ridger Mitchell Foundation of Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary uh, Encounters. Uh, I wrote a a chapter for their Beyond Reality book, which was like eight hundred some pages, uh, various submissions, uh, dealing with all these alternative areas of of ufology and the, the the UFO experience, and and they're putting out another one where they're going to explore all these different theories. And I was asked to do one on uh, on Keel's theories and his investigations and the alternative areas he looked into. So let's talk about Keel, and let's start with how Keel became fascinated by this material what drew him what drew him to it well keel was uh, as a young boy he uh he described himself as an insatiable reader a reading machine he read uh a lot on humor science travel aviation and uh magic he was very interested in sleight of hand magic uh something that he was he pursued all the years of his life but at one time, as a young boy, he thought about becoming a stage magician, but he liked reading on all kinds of subject matter and in, uh, you know, back when he was only uh, 14, he was born in 1930 uh, in New York State near Buffalo, he uh, 
he began writing a, a column called uh, Scraping the Keel. And there was a little humor in there, too. <laughs> and uh, it was a weekly column. He got $2 a week, which I guess back then was pretty good, pretty good money. And it was published in Perry, New York, Perry Herald. And then when he was 17, uh, he hitchhiked his way to New York City. He decided he wanted to be a writer. He wasn't even, hadn't even graduated high school yet. But with 75 cents in his pocket and with, uh, I think, a little box of personal belongings, belongings he, uh, he hitchhiked over 200 miles and uh, ended up in Greenwich Village became an associate uh, editor for Quarterly Poets of America from 47 to 49 and uh, began to write different uh, for other different magazines and radio stations and did anything he could to, you know, get his name out there. And, uh, and then in 1951, he got drafted in the Army and they, you know, they noticed that... Uh, he wrote a lot, so he actually became a journalist working for the American Forces Network in Frankfurt, Germany. Oh, really? Hmm. And uh, he got to do various. Uh, he he did a segment on travel. Uh, people in Europe loved his his programs, and he spent a night in uh, doing a live broadcast from the Great Pyramid in Egypt. And he also did a program, uh, I think, around Halloween of the uh, at the Frankenstein Castle <laughs> in Germany. You know, he had a uh, he had a reporter out in a forested area, and they were telling the, the legends of you know uh, of you know the the stories that were made up about Frankenstein and stuff. Got the the reporter that was out by himself all worked up. <laughs> And then they had somebody, I think, come out of the woods in a costume and scare him, you know, <laughs> a live broadcast. But uh, and after that, when he left the army, uh, he was uh, he was a radio foreign radio correspondent in places like Paris and Berlin and Rome and Egypt. And in 1954, he he left. He started a journey from Egypt going through Syria and and uh Baghdad and and, and uh, Tibet, India. Uh, Something you basically could not do today. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> and it was it was kind of rough back then too. And he ended up eventually after several months in in Singapore, um, and uh, and then he went to Barcelona and he took all of the stuff that he'd been writing and wrote a book called Jadu, um, which. Jadu means black magic, uh, you know, the, the Hindi word for black magic in the East. He had met all these marvelous street performers who pretended that they were great, uh, you know, performers of black magic or could do these tricks, uh, levitation and so on. And, and as a magician himself who studied magic, he, he was able to learn all these different tricks that they performed and how they deceived uh, people with their 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 various tricks, snake handling and and the Indian rope trick and being buried alive, and he studied and and, and sometimes he paid some money to different people to find out. Well, tell me your secrets, you know, and uh, and this is all in his book Jedu, Mysteries of the Orient. Uh, he he made his 
he, he, it was a very difficult journey. He started out, I uh, had a, an editor in New York that he would try to send articles to pay his way. And sometimes he would get stuck practically starving until the next check came in. Um, you know, it's something most of us would never consider doing, let's face it. But that's the way he traveled. And, uh, there were some pretty scary events on the way, but the main thing was that while he was, able to explain many of the things that he observed, there were some things that he couldn't explain. And he had a natural curiosity about uh, so many different areas. And one was a, a holy man that, uh, he said, read his mind, could tell him what he was thinking. And he asked the guy, how do you do this? And he says, well, I can explain how I've done it or how we do it, but he says it would take years and years for you to develop this ability in yourself and so that's that's in the book he was also in a, a temple where there was a, a buddhist temple where this this man claimed he could call in the spirits and uh there were a number of things odd things that happened but one of the main things was this three-legged wooden stool that came out of a one of the corners of the temple and circled around a chair where keel was sitting and keel uh you know reached around it, checked for strings, and he expected to find something, but he couldn't find any explanation. And then it went back to another corner, and then the session was over. So he, he walked over, and he picked up the stool, and he looked for any kind of uh, trickery he could find and, and never could, could find it. And he also uh, heard reports of uh, the Yeti while he was over there. That was his first... Uh, real experience with a cryptid investigation uh every time on his journey his hike through this these different villages he would get there just after uh the people described uh this yeti and he found footprints he heard what was said to be the call of the creature and really one, and at one time he saw this creature uh on the other end of a lake and oh. uh they uh some of the locals were saying there it is it's it's uh there's the Yeti, and but he couldn't be sure because it was such a distance and he thought it might have been a bear. Uh, an editor tried to convince him to say, yeah, yeah, Yeti's popular. Just say it was a, you know, it was a Yeti, Mr. Keel. But he, <laughs> he said, no, I, I can't really truthfully do that. <laughs> That's real interesting. With that background in stage magic and studying these kind of tricksters, do you think that had a lot to do with the fact that he, he went so much deeper than so many people because he's able to because after removing all the artifice, he still found core things that were unexplainable. Yeah, and he, he liked a good mystery. Uh, he was uh, actually uh, a reader of, uh, you know, Charles Fort. Yeah. Uh, and uh, who wrote a lot of stories of unexplained phenomena. And, of course, the uh, early reader of, of Ray Palmer's amazing stories that later became – who he also became in 1948 associated with Fate magazine dealing with unexplained things. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and of course, even his amazing stories, a science fiction magazine, uh, uh, a lot of people are writing in with stories uh, even prior to 1947 about uh, UFO type phenomena or underground civilizations. There was yeah, a whole the, Richard Sha Shaver mystery yeah, there. Yeah, the Darrows and stuff, yeah. Yes. So, you know, um, uh, he was 
pursuing all of that. He even attended a meeting in 1948 in New York City where uh, an, about 40 people were getting into an, a heated argument about whether the government uh, was covering up the flying saucer mystery. <laughs> so in 1966, Keel had uh, uh, made real good on a on a on a real humorous book that he had written. Uh, it was a a comedy, a spy spoof thing, kind of a James Bond type thing where, you know, all the girls were falling head over heels of, of uh, this guy. And uh, he sold about 800,000 copies and, and made pretty good on royalties and all. So he decided at that point, because UFOs were quite an interesting thing, and he had had a couple sightings himself, that this is what he would uh, investigate. And uh, he actually went to the Pentagon felt he was getting the runaround for him and they were told him they told him there was nothing to this Mr. Keel and he said, Well, I've seen the things myself, so don't give me that, you know, you can't fool me with that one. So uh and he was gonna write an article in Playboy magazine, but Dr. Heineck beat him to it, so <laughs> anyway, he instead what he did was he continued on and he drove across country to about twenty different states and uh, interviewed uh, quite a number of people, claimed in his uh, book, UFOs Operation Trojan Horse, that was published in 1970, that he had uh, interviewed over or made some kind of contact with over 200 contact experiencers. Um, and this probably came about because he had an article that was published in True Magazine early in 67 called Never Mind the Saucer, did you see the guys who were driving? And at the time, stories of contacts, being stepping out of UFOs, missing time, was not real popular with uh, the mainstream ufology. Uh, that would come years later with Whitley uh, Strieber and Bud Hopkins and such. But uh, anyway, this, this article uh, really got quite a response. Uh, a few weeks after it, it came out, he was called by the editor to come down to his office office keel walked in asked him what was going on and the guy waved to a corner and said you got some mail and keel said there were about six mailbags with thousands of letters many of them describing encounters with ufos and beings uh even missing time and uh he said at that time stories like that in magazines had been kind of a no-no you know but uh he realized this was what he wanted to to explore, uh, and uh, he did, and and what he found uh, convinced him that the subject was far more complex and mysterious than he had initially, you know, judged it to be. He thought initially that you know he was going to follow the the mainstream extraterrestrial hypothesis or theory, and instead he began to develop a more um, unusual line of thinking so we get to the mothman prophecies and we get to mothman you know that's the most famous one associated mm -hmm. with keel yeah it's it's the uh the mothman prophecies uh, 1975 was when it was published yeah great book one of my favorite books ever I, I love that book i mean it had a big influence on me and my thinking well it came out you know in 75 and uh it described how you know, he had made, I believe, about five different trips to, extended trips to uh, 
Point Pleasant, West you know, West Virginia and the surrounding area investigating uh, cryptids, mainly the you know, the one we hear most of is of course the, the Mothman, but there was also yeah. Bigfoot and kind of a headless man type figure. I haven't heard uh, that one. I've never heard that part. Well, but it's uh, yeah, and then there's uh, shadow, a lot of shadow people are apparently being described by people around the TNT area. R- Rosemary Guiley, who wrote the foreword to my book, and also I did an interview with her, talked about seeing shadow people uh, out in the uh, TNT area up, you know, just in recent years, um, and she felt that it maybe had something to do with the what they call the Muslim called the Jinn. Um, yeah. And, uh, I had her on uh, back in 2013, and we talked oh, about that book. Yeah, yeah. It uh, you know because she wasn't the only one. Ann Druffel out of California, uh, she had uh, looked into the uh, the gin and elementals and such, and and uh, the res- highly respected editor of Flying Saucer Review over in England, uh, Gordon Crichton. Uh, really delved into the gin aspect as well. So I, I think she, you know, was on to something there um, for sure. But um, whether we call them the gin or, or elemental beings or whatever, it's some sort of beings who seem to coexist with us. They have a lot of similarities from all these, all these different, you know, uh, legends, the myths, the religious writings, and so on of these different beings. Or call them the fairies or the fae. I mean, it's, it's almost essentially they really act the same in many ways. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, they've, uh, as Andrew Ruffle explained, they, they take a, a lot of them take a sexual interest in their, uh, hey. their the experiencers. Uh, they can appear and disappear and travel great distances uh, very fast and and they have similar appearances in a lot of instances. Uh, so, um, you know, it's uh, an intriguing consideration. And, and Valley, who I think was, Keel said, was initially quite skeptical of some of his early writings, began to kind of come around and, and uh, of course, as I say, wrote Passport to Magonia and, and uh, 69 and uh, followed in similar footsteps, uh, looking at the alternative aspects and and uh, continues to do so to this day, looking at the, you know, Marian apparitions, the shamanic, the elementals, the gnomes, the fairies, all that, uh, all the similarities and, and the contact experience phenomena. Yeah. And we're talking about something that's been here, that is a part of this planet, you know, that's probably part of the natural world that we just don't, that we sometimes can interact with. Um and also, too, you know, during the Mothman events, you, you have the Indrid Cold and Woodrow Derenberger and all that uh, contactee experience that's going on at the same time that, uh, you know, Keel wrote about as well. But right. I, I wanted to ask, was what was Keel's conclusion about what was going on there in Point Pleasant? Did he have like kind of like his own kind of pet theory? Uh, well, he certainly uh, felt it was what he called a window, an area where, um, you know, the a lot of activity occurs, uh, you know, different fluctuations in the intensity of the activity. And there was something going on with the, 
you know, some government interest, it seemed, too, at that time. Um, but I don't think he ever really nailed it down, or at least didn't bring that all out in public that much. But uh, there's been a lot of speculations by different people, uh, Andy Coleman being one, about, you know, maybe there were things going on at the TNT area, uh, which was a, an old World War II ammunition storage area and there were also i understand underground tunnels and operations that couldn't be seen from above ground uh even speculation that they were working on uh uh nuclear energy or something uh radioactivity supposedly has been detected around there and so i don't know about all that but uh you know it's uh there could have been some sort of uh, government the military activity going on that we aren't really um, privy to yet at this time and then Keel also felt that one of the things that the Air Force did he felt it was a logical step uh, was to uh, you know there was such a job in trying to interpret all this data and all this, these sightings but he felt that uh, probably what they did was locate sites which is what he did to go sky watching in and observe these things for themselves and you do hear reports about uh you know some of these window areas where people report uh military people on training exercises and such showing up at these areas too like the san luis valley in colorado and and yeah. uh sedona arizona uh some real major window areas there. Um, and Keel did a lot of sky watching there around the uh, Point Pleasant area and had some pretty terrific sightings. His best was April 3rd of 67. Uh, it was early morning, and uh, he was sitting alone in his rental car, chewing on a candy bar, listening to the Long John Neville show from New York City, which yeah. – Long John was the early Art Bell, of course. <laughs> yeah, he really, yeah, he really was. We, Seraphiel's got one this this uh, album, the the Flying Saucer story that has a lot of interviews with some of the old contactees like uh, Adamski and uh, George Hunt Williamson and um, uh, Orfeo Angelucci. It's really fascinating. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he saw a dome disc shaped looking object with these lights around the rim. And he was quite startled. He, you know, it seemed to come, go over to a ravine and just sort of get down in there. And he thought maybe it had landed. And uh, it so scared him, he locked all his doors. And uh, he, uh, you know, he had been flashing his flashlight at some of these lights. And he, he wrote in his little uh, notepad that he was really scared. Uh, he was used to going through graveyards and places late at night of the TNT area, uh, and, uh, on his own, but, uh, seeing this, this object scared the, you know, what out of him. <laughs> and he, uh, sat there for a while and then finally, of course he, he left, but, uh, sometimes he'd be joined on the, on these sky watches by a police officer or, uh, Mary Hire, who was, a uh, a local reporter, a stringer for the uh, Athens Messenger, and had an office there in Point Pleasant. And uh, anyway, he 
he uh, got the local police to go to the uh, place where he thought this thing might have landed. The next day, they couldn't find any trace evidence. They had a Geiger counter, but nothing was detected. But they, they did have uh, one odd experience. The uh, He said that the uh, that this strange sound, like a speeded-up phonograph record, a voice on a speeded-up phonograph record, coming through the police car radio. The odd thing was it was turned off, but yet this came through. And another officer who was there said, oh, that, that happened that night back in uh, when those two couples in the TNT area claimed they saw that creature, the Mothman, mm-hmm. um, which was about six months before. And he was interviewing him, and he said the same kind of a sound came through his radio. And uh, Keel was, you know, was noticing a lot of reports of, of, you know, strange voices and sounds coming through radios and television sets and stuff. He was interested in, in all of that. There was even a uh, communications and, uh, uh, let's see, an antenna with a control panel and all that uh, was up on a hilltop uh, somewhere, I think it was north of uh, Point Pleasant. I've, I've tried to find out more about this. But anyway, this it was seen, this object came down near there and uh, burned some grass. The fire department was trying to get up the hill to get to it, and there had just been some snow, and they were slipping and sliding. And uh, when they got to it, the inside panel was smoldering. They had to re- replace uh, the unit. And I think there was like a, a burned area on the hillside near the near the antenna. So they were uh, without their communications for a while. <clears throat> and uh, anyway, he had noticed that there were a lot of people who had also gotten strange radio messages. Uh, he even uh, heard of people with, like ham radio operators who uh, who were kind of reluctant to share their story normally, but said that they had reported voices coming over their radios Oh, uh, wow. Seth claimed to be space beings and even materializing in their their radio shacks. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. awesome. Dude. Yeah, that yeah, that yeah, I read that part in your book. That was that was really <laughs> really really interesting. I'm a little bit of a shortwave enthusiast, so that's uh... Yeah. So if you get on the shortwave and like an entity appears <laughs> and speaking to through. you. Uh let's let's talk a little bit about some of the themes in the book. Um and well, this is interesting, I think, to cover because this really fascinates me. This idea of like the phone calls from the dead. And you said that you've even gotten some like contact from Kiel himself. Yeah, I know it sounds crazy. Uh, but, um, and I was very skeptical at first. Uh, I, you know, tried some EVP stuff in the past, going back to the 70s, and really didn't have a whole lot of success. And uh, in early 2010, I met a gentleman, Brett Oldham, who was, we were doing a paranormal investigation, investigating haunted sites and such. And he had this, uh, what's called a ghost box. It's essentially just a a digital radio that you can get from Radio Shack, AM, FM, and you put it on, you know, get it to where it works on continuous scan. And the idea is that, you know, as it passes through the white noise, the spirits can come through and communicate. 
and uh, so, you know, Keel had passed uh, July 3rd, uh, 2009. And uh, so I was a little curious as to, you know, because uh, Brett Oldham had said, you know, he'd had a lot of success with this. He had, he seemed to have some real psychic sensitivity. He had <clears throat> had a ghost experience and even a alien experience going back to about age five and other experiences since then. So I thought, okay, this is the kind of people that Keel was investigating, you know? So maybe, maybe there is this possibility, although, you know, uh, nothing ever seemed to really work for me, but <clears throat> anyway, the, uh, the first time that we did this was in this, uh, the basement of a church about a hundred years old over in Fayetteville, Tennessee. And, there have been reports of footsteps and the suspicion of ghost and <clears throat> and so uh we tried this at the time i i didn't think i heard anything that that sounded significant it was only months later that i played the audio back and uh i was more used to listening to these sounds the ghost you know the the spirit box, the ghost box, Frank's box, whatever you want to call it, as it scans through the frequencies. And <clears throat> where we were nearing the end of the session, and uh, Brett asked uh, my wife's brother, who had passed on, and people called him Jesse, because Joan had heard Jesse a previous session, if he would like to speak to Joan, my wife. And at that point, instead of hearing his name, a voice came saying through saying keel johnny and uh well i was quite surprised because i didn't hear it the first time and this was a few months later but by that time i was already aware of john keel coming through we we did an investigation uh at a haunted site in may <coughs> of that year 2010 and uh that told me he said, I just heard John Keel come through, and it, it happened twice, and played it back, and sure enough, this male voice said John Keel. <clears throat> so what really convinced me, it was July 3rd of 2010, and we were doing a a session. Uh, this would have been the one-year anniversary of Keel's passing. And I said, if you guys don't mind, I'd like to try to you know, reach out to John Keel. <clears throat> well, we had... I think we had three tape recorders going. We had uh, the ghost box hooked up to a uh, stereo speakers. It was the contents were coming through loud and clear, uh, louder than we had a shout to be heard. And uh, from that, uh, it was right right at, toward the beginning that uh, the first session we did, we did two, and Brett asked. <coughs> his guide, a spirit guide or technician, uh, can you have John Keel say his name? And within a second or two, a male voice says John Keel. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, so at another point, he asked, you know, uh, John, what can you tell us about, now that you're on the other side, what can you tell us about Bigfoot? <laughs> and... This male voice again said, Smuck Bigfoot, see? And yeah, that was pretty surprising. Uh, and so I asked about Jedu, and I says, uh, 
John, can you tell us anything about Jeddu? And this loud male voice comes through and says, Jeddu, eh? And uh, so by this time, another thing I could think of was that, you know, uh, the only possible explanation was somebody was monitoring because this was so intelligent, interactive, that somebody had, you know, could have maybe a, a transmitter for an AM station was transmitting to us from some hidden location, you know. But it was hard to imagine because after that session, it was several hours before we did another one around midnight. And I was thinking, man, is someone out there, they got the house bugged and we're in a different room. <clears throat> they're going to a lot of trouble here. Well, I had to abandon my suspicions because I got my own ghost box and uh, I did sessions here at the house, just whenever we felt like it, you know. And uh, I would do sometimes one or two a week for a while there. For several years, I was kind of obsessed with this. Uh, one time, uh, this voice said, John Keel, Brent. And then it was followed by Bert here. And Bert, uh, Berthold Swartz, was, I called him Bert, was a psychiatrist friend of mine who was also a parapsychologist who also was a good friend of Keel. And soon after... Uh, Dr. Swartz passed away in uh, September of 2010, and we were doing these sessions. We'd ask who was there to help with the session, and often for a while there, for about a year, we'd hear Dr. Swartz as well as Bert. And uh, and then that time I got John Keelbrett Bert here all in one quick slice. Uh, it was very rare to get a full sentence. Occasionally. It would happen, and when it did, it was really mind-boggling. <laughs> uh, I remember one time we were hearing from somebody, we argued as to whether it was Enoch or Enoch. Hmm. And I, for about three minutes, I was here at the house asking, is it Enoch or Enoch or Enoch, an I or an O? And then a male voice came through. And I heard it in real time. It said, Enoch with an O. And I said, Enoch with an O. Holy, bleep. you know. Uh, it was very clear. And another time we, uh, you know, Brett had, the way he instructed us was at the end of the session, we'd uh, ask the spirits to say clear when they wanted to discontinue the communications. Just say clear. And we'd listen and we'd usually get a voice that would say clear. Well, one time, here at the house again, uh, instead of a voice saying clear, a voice told me, this cannot clear, this is energy. And, you know, I reported that to Brett afterwards, and he said, well, huh, that's never happened before. I said, maybe that was a, a spirit that uh, didn't understand uh, how we were operating. He says, we might have to explain further what we mean by clear. <laughs> So, uh, Keel was always suspicious that these were trickster-type beings, and uh, he knew of someone who got a voice from a medium that came through a medium that sounded very much like uh, a person who had passed away. Okay. And Keel really felt that you couldn't trust him, that that was just uh, a being that could tap into his that person's memories and, and their 
their voice pattern and such and, and, and pretend to be someone and provide information that might convince someone that that was who they were. So, you know, if I was to have talked to Keel before he died and said, what if I get a voice, uh, electronic voice uh, effect through a radio that says John Keel, could that be you? And he would have said, no, that's just, that's just, I believe that's just those, those ultra terrestrials, right. you know, pretending. Yeah. It's a tri- but, it's a trickster kind of spirit. Well, and you're kind of, you're, you're opening a door, you're asking for, you know, even if you're asking for a particular thing, you know, if there's other things that are just passing by, like, oh, there's a door, you know, so they can, it seems like they could use whatever you were thinking that you were trying to get a hold of. There was a fascinating story in the book that you told about Keel, uh, where he spends time with a friend and later finds out that something yes, had uh, happened to that friend earlier. And it's, yeah, it's kind so of, it's yeah. a really creepy story. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, again, this goes back and he was a lifelong atheist and he was, you know, skeptical about the religious interpretations, but he, he noticed that they influenced a lot of people he felt, uh, through their uh, religious beliefs and so on. And so when this happened to him, um, you know, he'd been doing these investigations uh, and he'd been getting uh, different messages of things that were going to happen. There was a prediction prediction of a, a power blackout that was supposed to happen uh, uh, November, let's see, how was it? <laughs> uh, no, December 15th. 1967 and he's in his apartment in new york city this is when he's getting all these weird prophecies that are coming and just yes yeah and and so he's expecting that there's going to be a power blackout and instead the story comes through the 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 television news bulletin about a uh a bridge collapse on the ohio river and he's already suspecting that it's the silver bridge there at point pleasant that he had crossed over many times himself uh, when investigating there. Uh, in fact, he had a motel that he stayed at across the, the Ohio River. And uh, But at this time, earlier, this old friend of his he hadn't seen in years, who even was his best man at this guy's wedding years earlier, uh, knocked on his door and came in and, uh, you know, they kind of caught up on old times, had all this guy's memories, was a dead ringer for him. There was no no question in Keel's mind that this was his old friend. They uh, even went out to eat later, and uh, and they uh, also went to a James Mosley talk that was given. Yeah. And I've, I've tried to see if some of the old timers had any pictures from that – that event, you know, because every time, you know, especially somebody like Jim Mosley, who was a kind of a, you know, was a celebrity at that time, still is well known. Um, there would have been pictures, and you know, we might have a picture of this 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 guy, but uh, unfortunately, <laughs> none of the old timers that I know uh, had such. But uh, anyway, uh, it was. A couple of years later, I guess, he meets the guy's wife in Macy's department store there in New York City. And he tells her that, I saw Joe. <clears throat> and, 
you know, how's he doing? And she says, I'm sorry, uh, he died of a heart attack, uh, John. And so, you know, then he says, oh, man. He says, uh, you know, he, he had just seen him uh, and tells her when they, when, you know, it was December of 67. And she said, that's impossible, John. He died of a heart attack in July 1965. Spent the whole day with him. Yeah. 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 Spent, right. Yeah. And uh, John, of course, uh, goes into interrogation mode. Well, uh, are you sure about the date? You know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. she gets rather indignant and right. says, John, I was right there when he died. Don't you think I'd know when my husband passed away? And so he writes this letter afterwards to this, this contact who told me the story to verify that Keel actually did tell the story. And, and this contact said, this was a big guy with a powerful handshake. I was there in the apartment when the guy was there too. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, he didn't want to be identified in, 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 uh, this particular story. But I, I also found out that, uh, uh, Tim and, John Frick from Maryland were at the uh, Mothman Festival in 2003 when Keel was there. They spent about eight hours with him and covered a lot of things. And at that time, uh, John Keel told him the story that I'm, you know, I just shared with you. Uh, he didn't tell him the name of the person at the time, but he, it was the same identical story. And uh, John said something to him about. Uh, Wow, that that must have been something else. What do you think? What do you think that meant, or what do you think uh, this means? And and uh, Keel said it hurts my my head too much to, you know, dwell on it for very long. Well, I mean, <laughs> and, if if you read Mothman prophecies, I mean, he's very much like going through this like nexus of weirdness. I mean, everything, all these synchronicities and all these like prophecies and he's listening to them and then he figures out eventually that it's just what, what does he say in the book he says something like it's a broken record that just is on it's just on a, a constant loop is that how he how he terms it to that there's this like it's it's essentially nonsense or at least the way it comes down to us is essentially nonsense yeah he learned he learned to kind of approach it cautiously because he said they could they could know the future but they would just give you so much information right then they'd give you this big the big event and if you went to the press about it uh you know it would it would be he called it the tiger behind the door of prophecy it wouldn't happen and he cited different instances where people had ruined their reputations by uh going forward and and I know a guy over here in uh, uh, Pulaski, Tennessee. Uh, he he wrote a column for the Pulaski Citizen. And he talked with contactees in his area back in the 70s, and uh, he got a message that there was going to be a powerful earthquake, and he put it in the newspaper, the date and everything, and then but it didn't happen. Uh, and then he became kind of like the fool on the hill afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Let's um, let's move on to something that I found interesting in the book that uh, I can't. This guy's name Hakan Blumquist. Is that oh his yeah, name? Uh, Hakan Blankovic or however you want okay. to pronounce it. I yeah, I you know I uh, 
I may not be pronouncing it 100% right either. Well, but, well he has uh, this idea called the esoteric intervention theory, and I kind of want to go over that because one of the things we talk a lot about on this show is the occult stuff, and this has a lot to do with theosophy and such. Right, and he's very uh, very knowledgeable on all that, very well read, and he met Kiel when Kiel came over there and uh, visited Sweden in 76. I think he spent a couple nights in, in uh, visiting Hakim Blankovic and some of his friends in uh, Hakim's uh, apartment. And uh, he felt as though that maybe if, if Kiel had maybe known a little more about uh, esoteric traditions, it might have helped him to maybe, he felt it might have helped him to uh, figure it out a little better and that it wasn't always maybe such a negative thing. But anyway, uh, I think he has kind of a, a perspective, as, as I've mentioned, my friend, uh, Dr. Greg Little, a Memphis psychologist who studied extensively on uh, Native American traditions and uh, sites. He's even written an encyclopedia on ancient mounds and earthworks. And uh, of the Native American trickster, he says the mm -hmm. Native Americans saw the trickster as also potentially a teacher. Yes. And it would they would test you to see if you were worthy of of uh, higher knowledge and understanding, or if maybe your ego was going to get the best of you, or you know, there would be a, a testing process, say in the beginning of a vision quest, and and other events. And uh, so, you know, it may be that some of these things are uh, along that line, and you know, the Native American traditions, shamanism, the esoteric traditions, and so on. Uh, that it's not all necessarily bad, bad as as Keel had perceived it. Uh, although some of the stories I heard certainly were not good, but maybe you know it's like uh, what we find among humans: this good and bad too. Um, well, and this idea of having to go through trials and you know having to pass through negative things, right? That's especially true in, in both the mystery schools and in uh, more traditional peoples throughout the world. Yeah, there's a lot of times there's the symbolic uh, ritual of, of, you know, the death ritual, the dying away of, right. of what is, and then the renewal or, you know, like the phoenix rising from the ashes, um, recreating a new destiny for yourself what what was keel's take on on the occult and kind of like western esotericism well he had a really dim view i asked him one time when we were talking on the phone and we were talking i had brought up the subject of marian apparitions and i knew he had studied this uh right. He presented quite a number of cases in his operation children back in 1970 and i said you talk about you know, the, the tricksters, you talk about demonic type events or, you know, activity with these things. And I says, what about something positive? And he said that he had never really, uh, he said even the Marian apparitions and such, the holy events, turned sour in the end, he, he felt. <coughs> and he said that years earlier, and you, you know, I think he asked me if I had ever got his letter and I said no but they did send around a, a letter to different people back in the late 60s explaining his 
concern that uh, what we were dealing with didn't have the our best interests at heart. Well, do you think it almost seems like he has this kind of, uh, I don't know how to explain exactly, like almost a, a, a dark spirituality that almost borders on maybe some some type of elements of Gnosticism or things like that, where like it, we're kind of this... Uh, we're kind of just screwed, you know, and we're we're trapped in this kind of, this you know oppressive reality. I had cons. sent him a copy yeah. of my my first book uh, published in two thousand four, Visitors from Hidden Realms, and he wrote me a little card and handwritten and said appreciated me. Said I said sending him the book and uh, he enjoyed it. Uh, he said that my journey had been pretty much like his. Uh, you know, you you just come as close as you can to an interpretation but you know nothing's ironclad but he said that things looked very dim that uh you know religion was going to fail us and people were just uh clinging to false hope <laughs> you know it was it was pretty uh pretty dark indeed and uh and of course with typical keel humory on the cover of the card was a was a young boy with it was it was all snow and ice outside and he had his tongue stuck to a metal pole (laughs) (laughs) in fact i I remember calling keel uh on the phone one time i got his answering machine and he says i can't come to the telephone right now i'm out here in the back alley uh taking uh uh pot shots that pedestrians going up and down the sidewalk i'll get back with you Would you describe him as kind of a, as existentialist? His ideas of of how the universe actually works does that kind of tie in with as existentialist ideas of the absurd? Like he thinks that reality is absurd and kind of just pitted against us, and you know, even on multiple dimensional levels. Well, I mean, like. I, yeah, I think if, when he's dealing with all this stuff, if, if if you read Mothman prophecies, I mean, you can tell that that's where he's going. Yeah, that. You know, is everything just that he gets he gets really wrapped up in what these entities or whatever are telling him so much so that he starts to really just believe it. But then he realizes he's just on a wild goose chase. Right. It's just they're just they're just messing with him. And I think that that's probably where it starts. It probably starts for him right then and there. Yeah, he um, you know, he uh, was. Well, you know, that that, that experience he had meeting um a friend who was he found out had been dead over two two years before that would have for most people that would have been a very profound and positive spiritual thing but uh for keel um no he had a very difficult time with that from from what he what he said to the Frick brothers and shared with the the guy that was in his apartment that uh that time so um yeah, his 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 uh, perception of it was very dark. Uh, I mean, he was we're standing on his shoulders today. He was a true pioneer who led the pack and in pursuing the areas he yeah. did. But uh, at the same time, I mean, I I tell people that I I try to take a more positive, optimistic view of mm-hmm. of the phenomenon in, in the future. But I admit there's there's things that that make you certainly wonder, and you've got to. You've got to follow in his footsteps and and ask these questions and pursue these 
uh, perplexing cases, I feel, to whatever logical conclusion lies ahead. But uh, I, 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 I feel that, uh, you know, he, he just, uh, his, his atheistic perspective just prevented him from really, and, and he just felt like these were, even though he was not really a believer in demons, he felt that they played all these reality games uh, with us. And uh, whatever, whatever frame right. of reference uh, that, uh, you know, could kind of pacify the, the, the experiencer, um, then that's what they would employ. Uh, he called it, uh, at one point, psychological warfare tactics, which he said he learned a little about when he was in the Army. And he felt they were manipulating us, that uh, a lot of these contact experiences were actually variations of religious phenomena like Marian apparitions or uh, you know, the, the fairy encounters, which involved missing time and sexual elements and... Uh, all the same classics of the con UFO contact experience, those, those same elements uh, being a part of the the syndrome. Yeah, I mean, if you look at other people, too, like, you know, it's like somebody like Philip K. Dick and the whole Vallis stuff, you know, as they just got more and more wrapped up into this nexus of weirdness. And Kiel... You know, talks a lot. Talks a lot about that. You know, it's it's. it's well, Keel was even thinking about writing a book about uh, witches and warlocks uh, because he yeah. wrote that. You know, early in his life, he felt like he had the potential for uh, maybe having interaction and partial partially controlling these elemental beings himself. He wrote to Colin Wilson about this, and uh, he wanted to do a book where he was interviewing those people and about their experiences. But, you know, he might've started to do that research, but, uh, certainly there never was a book that, that appeared on the, on that subject. But, uh, he had had experiences early on with a poltergeist in the uh, farmhouse where he grew up with his, you know, largely with his grandparents. Uh, there was, uh, he had a sighting of a large spherical object, uh, rising up from a hilltop uh, when he was only seven. But he says the memory that's burned in his, his memory is, so, you know, his memory. Uh, when he was 18, he had a classic illumination experience where this room he was at off of Times Square became filled with this indescribable light and his mind was flooded with a turn of information. By the next morning, though, he could only just remember a little bit, but he felt like something was downloaded in his subconscious. Um, and again, that would have been an experience that a lot of people would have felt was uh, a powerful religious thing, but uh, he, you know, he didn't pursue that, that aspect, even though he was exposed to it. Uh, he... When he was also very young, the place that he grew up at, uh, people reported a, I think when he was 10 years old, a like a gorilla crossing the, the road there in his that town, and people were quite frightened by the encounters, and of course now he looks back at it and says, it was probably Bigfoot. <laughs> um, 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, because you mentioned that that you know he's got that Yeti experience when he's out there in Tibet, and what you just what you just talked about, and it seems like he himself almost was like a catalyst for this weirdness to be drawn to him. Yeah. Or he was drawn to yeah, it. That's, I mean, you know, that's you know, some, I guess, you know, or yeah, vice that's versa. That's something that uh, Rosemary Guiley wrote in her forward uh, was that, uh, you know, she knew Keel and spent quite a bit of time with him. And she says he often talked about how people, a lot of the experiences yeah. were wired a certain way that made him uh, prone to these experiences, but he never talked about himself. But she felt that uh, certainly he was one of those individuals as well and that it probably helped him to uh, uh, recognize a lot of the same elements within his own life experiences and uh, maybe, you know, it maybe helped him to make, I would say, you know, uh, the connections better. And the, the Mothman events are going on, so was he just drawn into that, you know, into that, into that, that high strangeness. Yeah, in fact, it seems like the uh, this llama that he met over, you know, in uh, in his travels back there in the 1950s when he was doing the Jadu thing, that uh, the one that could read his mind, and then he was trying to learn what he could because he was considered a very sacred uh, person, and uh, he was mystified by him, and uh, he. Uh, he really uh, wanted to understand how he was able to do what he did. In fact, while while the guy was talking to Keel, <clears throat> and I think he was he was an older fellow, and he he uh, had this walking stick, and he raised himself up on this walking stick, and just sort of hovered there in the air. Uh, which Keel thought was an amazing feat to observe because here they were having this long conversation and this guy was acting like it was nothing to, you know, uh, rise himself up on the stick and have this conversation and read Keel's mind and stuff and tell him how it was done. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your own kind of personal Minute Black encounter that you had. Well, I... <clears throat> Yeah, who are the men in black? Uh, you know, Keel had felt that they were like the entities, I guess. Uh, the, the men in black, It was he felt like that if he could, because I think there were two or three occasions where he arrived just minutes after an MIB had alleg allegedly been visiting a witness. And he really wanted to uh, actually corner corner one to uh to find an mib that he could actually approach and talk to and and uh <clears throat> get uh you know he, he knew that it was going to be impossible to catch one of the little little guys from the flying saucer but maybe he might stand a chance to catch an MI, mib who he he felt you know the mib some of them were uh possibly people who were under the control influence of the these ultra terrestrials so he thought maybe he could find out something. Uh, <clears throat> I met a couple of people who uh, who claimed that they were MIB or felt they 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 filled a, a context uh, <clears throat> within that regard. Uh, there were two people in uh, near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 
that I met in 72. They were, uh, one was a psychiatric social worker who was a ufologist, and she had been through a series of MIB experiences, her and her family, and, and, and uh, poltergeist type of activity. And another was a, a young UFO researcher uh, named Floyd Murray, who has since passed on. But uh, <clears throat> they both knew about this, uh, these two gentlemen who a lot of people felt had great psychic energy. And uh, this woman said that, you know, they even, one of them uh, even resembled MIB right down to the monotone voice. <clears throat> and uh, some people were actually scared of him because of the psychic power. Uh, there was one woman told me, uh, and this was in the witchcraft community, that uh, she had met him on the astral plane as a hooded monk-like figure. And to be very careful, you know, in dealings with him. And uh, so I got to interview some of those people. And uh, the uh, this psychiatric social worker told me, she called him genies. <laughs> uh, and uh, she said that they, uh, they helped to rid her family of their MIB problems when they were having problems. They were a much more sociable uh, group of people, she said, the, these two gentlemen. And she felt that there was something something there that, you know, in fact, she would send, she would send messages, I found out, uh, from one of them uh, to John Keel, little, little warnings and such, whatever that consisted of. <laughs> and uh, I never did find out. I've recently asked Doug, Doug Skinner, if if he ever sees anything like that with you know the material that's that's left in his possession to to let me know, but he said he he hadn't. Uh, and you know, in hindsight, I look back at it and think, damn, I when I talked to John Keel, that was something I should have asked him about, but but never did, you know, tell him this this story. But anyway, um, while I was down there, we uh, we stopped. Uh, Floyd Murray and myself and my friend David, who came with me on this journey, uh, we we both lived in Maine at the time. We were we were traveling down to Long Island and to Pennsylvania, and so here we are in Pennsylvania, and we're visiting this uh, New Age Center where people were gathered, and uh, it was going to be closing in a while. And Floyd thought he was going to talk with someone and. Maybe it was supposed to be a, the building was supposed to be haunted, and maybe we'd just spend the night. That is until <clears throat> suddenly uh, Floyd comes to me and says, Hey, Brent, I want you to meet somebody. And I come out the door, and there's a car parked there, and he opens the door and almost shoves me in, I felt like, into this front seat with this guy sitting there. And it turned out he was the guy that they, these two people said was like, uh, you know, the sociable MIB type. And and so I started questioning him and, uh, you know, and, and everything I'd say to him was just very general. Uh, do you have out-of-body experiences? Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it was just very, he says, why don't I start, uh, this isn't working out too good for you. He says, why don't I start asking you questions? I said, okay, yeah, sure. That'll, that'll work. And, uh, 
he started talking about, you know, my interest in contacts and the men in black. And he was especially interested in the men in black, uh, of course. And, and he says, you know, like right now, if I were an MIB, I could be preventing you from being somewhere where something else was going on. And I immediately thought about, yeah, yeah, the haunted house thing, yeah. <laughs> which we didn't get to do because the place closed down by the time I got out of the car. And uh, he went from being really serious uh, for a while and then started uh, uh, talking about, gee, what would it be like to see if, if you know, to check, make sure the MIB wasn't uh, a robot, like maybe try to cut off one of its fingers, you know, and they started this weird laugh. And, and then he turned the heater on his car. And I just decided at that point, okay, I've had enough. I'll see you later. It's just so <laughs> yeah. weird. So strange. And then I... I was in the Navy at the time, and it was in Florida, Jacksonville, Florida area, Jacksonville Beach. And yeah. uh, a friend of mine on the ship uh, told me that he'd been downtown there, and the ship was homeported in Mayport nearby, a few miles away. And he had been down by the bus station. He met this real interesting guy, uh, gave him a, uh, a business card, uh, with his contact information and he said all he wanted to do was talk about flying saucers and stuff so i says well thanks i'll i'll follow up on it and uh i went to his the house and he wasn't there the first time i went but i talked to his mother and she told me about seeing these two like ferris wheels going down the the beach up in the air just spinning around with these lights on them you know said the neighbor across the street seen it too and uh so anyway i eventually went back and this time the guy was home and uh he uh claimed that he had had a a uh, encounter where some years earlier where he made contact uh and and these two beings a male and a female had entered him and he was like in constant contact, and uh, he described. So, like they possessed him. Is yeah, yeah. Either? He was. He claimed he was possessed, okay. but he was, uh, you know, me and uh, a Navy buddy of mine. We we went out with him to different clubs, and it was he was he was dressed in dark clothing, and uh, he you know he even told at that point that uh, he was a uh, he also you know, worked as an MIB. I said, okay. And, and, uh, he would just go up to perfect strangers and start telling them about the space people and stuff. And, and, uh, and unbelievably, uh, people seemed to enjoy his stories. You know, they, uh, they didn't get kicked out of any clubs <laughs> as, as weird as it, it sounded. And, uh, so, uh, but I wasn't able to, you know, I spent several hours with him, wasn't really able to uh, say whether, you know, how much was delusional, how much, you know, uh, was maybe what Keel was looking for. But uh, his mother. Or somewhere, or somewhere, somewhere in, between. in between. His mother was, you know, she described the, the two UFOs that she had seen. And uh, she seemed quite... Uh, quite sensible and and uh the only thing about him that was usual was just his 
his openness and walking around like it was nothing to say, yeah, I've, I've met the space people. I know this, uh, this alien woman and this man that I communicate with regularly. And, you know, uh, and, uh, that was, that was it. He kind of an interesting character. The, the area there around Jacksonville beach seemed to have a lot of people with a lot of stories. Uh, I met Ramona, uh, Clark at the time. She later became Ramona Hebner. She had had a very interesting experience. She was married to a Navy man at the time of the experience and in July 67. Uh, saw a dome disc-shaped craft. It was seen by some other people nearby. It was right by the the base. People thought at first it was a plane coming in for landing. Turned out to be a dome disc-shaped dark gray object about 35 feet across. And it ended up at one point just right over the top of their car. And uh, within about three days after that experience, they had all this weird poltergeist-type activity. And uh, it started with sounds and odors and eventually worked up to 3 a.m. encounters with uh, balls of light in the bedroom and a being by the side of her bed that kind of did a little shape-shifting. At first, it resembled someone she knew, and then it seemed to take the form of uh, this creature with a cat-like face, <clears throat> which was interesting because I, I later met a, a guy who uh, claimed nearby that uh, he had had this encounter with a being with a cat-like face that paralyzed him with a, a beam of light, and... Uh, he began to have all these strange dreams at three o'clock in the morning as well. Uh, like stranger than what happened with the <laughs> guy with the cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Paralyzing him with a beam of light. Yeah, he was, uh, he was fishing down at a place called Blunt Island. And, uh, he, uh, that happened, but I had some really strange dreams too. Uh, yes. Oh, the dreams. Yeah. They, uh, he was meeting, uh, he was being told these things about the planet Mars. They were going to find a pyramid and some evidence of ancient uh, ancient ruins and stuff, you know. And uh, he was seeing one of the aliens in these very lucid dreams at 3 o'clock. And he really, mm -hmm. you know, and he was also uh, claimed that when, I think it was back in 1947, as a young boy up near Atlanta, Georgia, that he was... He liked to explore caves, and uh, at the time, he encountered three of these beings with a cat-like face, and at the time, he assumed they were they were demons. He was in a cave, and he encountered three, and it scared him real bad, and he couldn't wait to get out of the cave, and uh, then he uh, and then he had this experience, 1972, while he was fishing there on the St. Johns River in Florida. And uh, there was a UFO. It started off with a UFO, and then there was the being. So he realized, oh, they weren't devils. They were, you know, it was an alien. <laughs> you know, this just seems like this. That that's very much like the just the the trickster quality of this of this material. Yeah, and and he was, uh, you know, I noticed he was also involved for years in in. Uh, different faith aspects of witchcraft that he, you know, he was kind of into witchcraft like some of these other people. And uh, uh, 
you know, Keel noticed that there were a lot of similarities between uh, historical MIB encounters involved in, like, uh, incidents in the witchcraft literature, demonology. And uh, even back in, oh, let's see, it was around the winter of 1904-05, there was this huge religious revival in Wales where all these UFO-type phenomena was occurring. And there was even one report by two people that said they'd seen this dark, sinister-looking male figure, and a uh, ball of light came down and shot a beam of light at this figure who was believed to be the devil, and he disintegrated. <laughs> well, really get into the weeds on some of this stuff, Brent. I mean, this is fascinating material. Um we need to have you back on because there's a lot in this book and there's a lot that we need to explore because, and I really want to talk to you about some of this stuff about like the Indian mounds and ley lines and earth energies and all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we, we need to do, we need to do something about that. And of course, as we're recording this, um, this is going to be after put out after the strange realities conference, but we are going to see you in just a few days. So maybe we can, we can sit down and talk about some of that stuff too. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, looking forward to it. It's uh, going to be interesting. I hope you get a huge crowd there. And, uh, as do we. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it, it should be interesting. It should yeah. be interesting. Tell people where they can find the book and also where they can, can find you. And, um, are you still publishing your, your online mag or your yes, magazine? Yes, I've been at this magazine since 1985. I started out as Paraufology Forum, a little, usually a, a four page print mag, uh, bulletin. And, uh, it's graduated up to, uh, you know, this online magazine, uh, comes out on the first of each month, and then we archive the previous issue. So we've got several several years of back issues that are online, uh, and we always have you know uh, a series of different columns, uh, guest submissions, articles, and interviews, and book reviews, and letters to the editor when someone bothers to write us, <laughs> and. Uh, comes out once once a month and it's free of charge oh, nice and it's called uh alternate perceptions and it's at uh, uh apmagazine.info is the the website and uh that's it's because the book itself john a keel the man the myths and the ongoing mysteries is available on amazon and uh and uh i self-published it on kindle and it, uh, it's been available since July 14th, and it's getting a lot of great reviews. I've got, I can't, I can't believe Excellent. it. I've got seven five star reviews right now. Um, I didn't expect that with running a book on John Keel, but he's, like I said, I think if he were back now writing his uh, his articles, his books, that he would be better received. There's more of an interest in the areas that he explored uh, years ago going back 50 years <laughs> is is there anybody now that you follow that you think would be like kind of like a worthy successor to kill uh well there's uh there's certainly a number of people up in uh uh you know that that attend the, the mothman festival every every year in fact they're they're really involved they uh rosemary guiley 
<clears throat> she used to meet with them also. They would they would attend the the Mothman Festival every September if they could, and then they would be also involved getting together on their own personal investigations. It might be somewhere in New York State or somewhere else in West Virginia. But there's uh, a Steve Ward who lives up in Michigan, and then there's uh, oh yeah, I know about Steve. And then there's, yeah. There's, yeah, I need to get Steve on. Uh, Tim and and John Frick who live in in uh, Maryland, and they. Uh, they uh, of course met Keel uh, in 2003, and they they've been reading, devouring his material, and uh, they dress up as the Men in Black at every festival. And they also uh, created this uh, when they do the hay rides out in the TNT area. They've got this made up uh, thing like to look like Mothman with glowing eyes that they send across over their heads the people on the hay rides uh, on a line. <laughs> and uh they also uh when i was there in 2015 went uh one of the hay rides which my ride actually didn't have any hay but uh i'm not complaining but they these guys in a golf cart come up these young guys dressed as mibs and warned us to stay out of there not to go any further but you know uh my grandson uh stood up he was about nine i guess and told them i'm not afraid of you <laughs> and they they went off on their merry way after that <laughs> <laughs> so well brent this is i I'm said sorry, so they ahead. weren't too fright frightening <laughs> no no not not menacing no. at all well brent this has been very interesting thank you for coming well on the thank show. you very much for for having me uh the both of you appreciate it absolutely thank you. sir all right, we'll stay on the line for us. Uh, we're going to close out this section, and guys, we'll be back to close out the show on Conspiracy Normal. If you want your HR team to hire top talent for your company, tell them about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your company's job posts, so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, we're back, guys. And that was an interesting conversation with Brent Rains. Absolutely. Glad to have him, and I'm sure in the past or the future, we're glad to have met him at the Strange Realities Conference. And it was nice meeting you, Brent. It was nice yeah. meeting you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, any impressions on that interview? Oh, that was really cool, because I'm familiar with a lot of John Keel's ideas, and I've read some, but uh, to get that kind of uh, background on who he was as a person in his life, that was really, really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we just did something that you guys I'm sure have already heard, but, uh, we were just on strange familiars with Tim and we talked about the strange realities conference, which as you're hearing, this has already happened. I'm getting really confused and it probably was, because I'm tired. It was epic, epic. And there were no disasters, hopefully. There was no disasters. <laughs> Everything was seamless. Yeah. Something like that. I'm sure that uh, you'll know what exactly happened at some point. Adam, I keep getting you to try to visualize the stuff with me, you know. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. Gotta be Sorry, I, I thought it was the... Uh, I didn't know it was the... We were engaging a new thought there. Okay. I thought we were just still just confused. But... And yeah. this is kind of like a time ritual, too, man. True. Yeah. Do like a time ritual with Good it. Good point. Yeah, we're, we're sending... Since this is in the future. We're sending our energy but you've, and thoughts into the future. You know, future. but you've got to completely feel... Uh, okay, yeah. Is You've got to completely that what, feel it inside of you. That is that you what Napoleon in, Hill says? You are in the future right now, and the Strange Realities Conference just happened. Right, yeah. It this, was amazing. Yeah, it's, it's October 29th, and it's already... It's it's 10 days later, and it's already happened. Okay, yeah. All right, I got you. I got you. All right, we're just putting, we're just putting that out there. Guys. I see how that goes. So, we did an interview... With a little roundtable discussion with Soraya from Where Did the Road Go and Timothy Renner, who joined us at the Strange Realities Conference 2019 on Strange Familiars. So you guys, if you've not heard that yet, go check that out. It was a really good discussion. Then we were also, uh, what was that uh, what was that obscure radio show that we were on also? Oh, yeah. Last we need to night. Mention that. We need to mention that. Right. So we may have picked up some new listeners because we got to be on Coast to Coast. Yeah. Um, very briefly. We were on there for three minutes, one minute of which was a clip that we put together. Yeah. Um, from our interview where we spoke at the end of the Diana Pasuka interview. Yeah, we got to be the uh, podcast of the week on Coast to Coast. We got to talk to George Norrie for a couple of minutes. It's pretty pretty wild. We got to hear um, the chase theme over the phone. Yeah. As Coast to Coast came in. And so, like, Mm -hmm. that was pretty pretty epic to me. Haven't heard that since I was, like, in seventh grade. So that was pretty awesome. That's the big daddy of all pretty much paranormal radio shows. Biggest in town. Yeah. They are the, you know, been around So we for really a long, appreciate long it and all the new uh, listeners we have from Coast to Coast. Welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we hope you like these shows. We got a lot to uh, check out for free anywhere you listen to podcasts. So if you're interested, guys, in supporting our show, we have a Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Um, it's as little as $1 a month, and you have access to about believe we're up to about 30 smaller episodes patreon only episodes that you guys can check out on there um if everybody gives a dollar that really does help us that's why we try to keep it low it's up to you whether you want to give us more uh there's also if you don't want to have a recurring thing some people don't you can go to conspiranormal.com and there is a donation button there on our website as well and also YouTube channel, also available, Conspiracy Normal Podcast. Please subscribe there. We're upwards of about, well, as I'm recording this, upwards of about 700 subscribers. Um, just hit that button. That'll really help us, hopefully, in the long run. And leave an iTunes review if you feel compelled to do so. Plus. Hopefully a positive one. We've got t-shirts. We do. Yeah, please. Tell everybody about that. You can go to tpublic.com slash store slash conspiranormal store of which we sold one as we record we were we were recording this evening what they would they get which one the um i've got the skull with the fez and the bigfoot with the fez yeah i think it's the bigfoot okay it's the bigfoot what color did they get red i believe cool let's see t public 
they bought a baseball and Bigfoot and Conspiranormal logo. It does not say what color. Okay, cool. Okay, well, that's basically it, guys. We're going to have some uh, great shows for you as we round out the year. And we're really looking forward to that. We love to do in the conference, but we're glad to get back to just doing the Conspiranormal for a little while. That's right. So, all right, guys. Have a good night. And we'll talk to you soon on Conspiranormal. products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.